0: But I am genuinely thankful at opportunities to be able to preach, um, to exalt Jesus out of his word instead of just give updates. So I'm thankful to be here. And what I'd love to do is just share a text that's been impactful for me um, over the course of the last three years over in Ireland. Uh, a text out of the book of First Peter. And man, I just love this book. It's the first book of the Bible that I read as a Christian, and we're going to have some fun together this morning because we get to talk about suffering. You're welcome. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not sorry because this theme of, of trials and suffering is so massive in First Peter. Uh, it's one that Peter clearly thinks is instrumental for the early church to understand Peter wrote this letter for the the early church, right? New Christians in new churches that were dispersed throughout the regions, reminding them of their gospel identity in Jesus and giving them the essential instructions of how to live as Christ followers in a broken world. And as he writes these essential instructions for these Christians, it takes Peter till verse 6 to begin talking about suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then he brings it up again in chapter 2, then again in chapter 3, and again in chapter 4, then again in chapter 5. And by Peter expressing this over and over and over again, he's trying to communicate to the hearers of this letter a roadmap for what to expect in the Christian life. And I think one of our issues as the Western church is that we're regularly given the wrong roadmap. And it affects what we expect life to be, what we put our hope in, and then what we deem as success as Christ followers. When suffering regularly comes upon us, as as Christians, it seems strange and confusing. And we don't know what to do with it. I'll explain more what I mean by that in a bit, but let me just give you this to start. As Christians living in a broken world, an essential part of the life that God has intentionally called us to is to walk in the steps of Jesus as obedient, suffering servants. This isn't just about learning to cope with righteous suffering. That's just the shallow end of the pool. The true depth of this calling that Peter leads us to here in the text and then the letter at large is so much bigger and more beautiful than just coping with suffering. And so what I want to do this morning is just give us a vision of the depth of what God is doing underneath and through this life as obedient, suffering servants. Why is that our walk as Christians? To what end? And how are we to walk it out? So let's pray, and then we'll we'll dive into our text. Well, Heavenly Father, we just come before you again, and we just ask for your help. God, we are needy children. We don't claim to do any of this in our own strength. You alone open the mouths of babes and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and open the hearts of those that are hard-hearted. And I just pray, God, would you help me to speak your word clearly? And I pray for all of us, would you open the ears and eyes of our heart to see you out of your text and respond? Uh, So we pray, Holy Spirit, would would you help us? In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, all you Americans, let's open up our Bibles to our text this morning. It's 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 18. And sometimes to see the value of your culture of origin clearly, it helps to momentarily step out of your culture. Uh, and uh, while it's nothing new, living in Ireland the last couple of years has just kind of given me fresh eyes uh, just to see some American values, such as our love for personal freedom. I mean, a few weeks ago, most of us probably celebrated with giant repeating explosions in the sky, or what? Our Independence Day, right? Independence, baby! Oh yeah, man, we love love our freedom as Americans. Our freedom of choice to live out our lives as we see fit. And I'm not discussing it today, but to help us understand the context of our text, Peter just got done laying out... God's command for his people living in a broken world to submit to whatever authorities they're under. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, Peter writes. Because, see, in God's kingdom, the value system is that we are a people who are free, freer than anybody, but we willingly submit. This is God's will for his people. And then he takes it one step further. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now the word translated as servant here can be understood as house slaves or bond servants. My hunch is uh, none of you are either of those. Let's just spend a moment on context here. The Roman institution of slaves or bond servants was different from the institution of slavery in North America that we would be more familiar with. And we would do well to be mindful of that. Slavery was not an institution based on race, for example, uh, but often came as a result of being captured in war. And they were usually permitted to work for pay and even save enough to buy their freedom. Eventually there was also no middle class at this time. You had the rich and you had the poor. Um, And oftentimes, the, the very poor would actually sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. It was something quite different from the evil, vile slavery that has marked our country. And yet, obviously, no man or woman should have this extensive authority over another human being. This is the result of a broken world. And what was often the reality was that these bond servants were often mistreated by their masters. And man, we can only imagine the helpless, hopeless, defeated feeling that you would have to be a slave under the authority of an unjust master. And Peter says, if that's you, Christian, for as long as this is your reality in a broken world... Even if your master is unjust, be subject to them with all respect. Man, this is so alien to our 21st century ears. And on face value, this seems quite cruel, perhaps even pro slavery. I have to be brief here, but Peter is not condoning slavery. While he doesn't call for its abolishment here, it's the principles of Christianity and the intrinsic value of all human beings that we see in the Bible that led to and empowered its abolishment. If Peter had said to the servant, leave your cruel master, he shouldn't be a slave. We need to realize that there's a good chance that meant the servant's death, either by punishment if he were caught or by destitution because society couldn't support them. Peter's not being cold and cruel. He's thinking about what is best for a Christian that's in this context, as well as their higher calling that we're going to see play out here. All right, now our society today doesn't have masters and slaves, praise God, but we do have bosses, landlords, coaches, societal structures, parents, all right, teens. You know what I'm talking about, right? talking about unjust masters? I see you out there. Listen, we've got all kinds of uh, authority figures that we subject ourselves to in this life. And I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that submission is probably a universally disliked thing. But man, it seems especially primed in our culture. Right? Like, ain't no one going to tell me how to live my life. Right? That's so in our hearts. And look, it's it's not just out something that's out in the world, right? This is a thing that's that creeps into our churches, it creeps into our our small groups. Your boss is mistreating you. You don't deserve that. You tell them off. You go make your own way in the world. And look, if your worldview is that there is no God and that this is your only life, then that makes sense, right? If you think that being in charge of your life is what is best and that this is your only life, then it would be insanity to submit to an unjust ruler. But listen, church, that's not our worldview. And I think Peter did something intentional for us in the text to remind us of that. Look back at verse 16. Where Peter said, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. Then down to our text in 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Peter is reminding us, family, that, that we are first and foremost bondservants of God. In our destitute position of need, God purchased us in full for Himself. He is our true master. He has ultimate authority over us. And He is good and gentle. It is because I am ultimately submitting to God as my master that empowers me to submit to unjust authority. Listen, the unjust earthly master isn't working for my ultimate good. He won't rightly credit my submissive servitude, but he isn't my true master. My true master sees all, and he is just. Whatever done wrong to me, he will judge and make right in the end. is always working for my good, and he doesn't miss anything. I can suffer through whatever unfair treatment because I trust my sovereign master, to rightly judge every wickedness and reward everything that's deserving of reward. All right, so whatever situation you find yourself in, Christian, you, by faith, serve God in the matter as your master. Peter then continues in in verse 19, And he says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. First things first, there are many causes for our suffering in this world. And one of those causes for our suffering is that sometimes we're idiots. I mean, we're idiots, right? Like we we sin, and then there are consequences for it. Like if I cheat on my wife, and then our marriage starts to fall apart, and a domino effect of suffering happens, that's not unjust suffering. That's suffering by my own hands, my own foolishness. And just listen, our cultural context is a victim mentality. Nothing ever seems to be our own fault. We blame everybody around us and play victim. And again, let's be honest, church, it's not just out in the world that comes into our churches. And so we have to fight against the current of our culture and actually own our stuff. There is suffering that comes from our own foolishness. And Peter says it is of no credit to us when we suffer as a result of our own sin. We also see that that it's a credit to us only when we are mindful of God. So it depends in part on our mindset in the matter, right? Like if we suffer with a mindset that's set on ourselves grumbling the whole time, not looking to God in the process, we won't see this credit. But hear what this is saying. There are kinds of suffering that we endure as a Christian that is a credit to us. Now, what in the world does that mean? Like what kind of credit or reward from God do we receive by suffering unjustly? At face value, the easiest interpretation is that it's referring to heavenly rewards. And I think that's a correct interpretation. But I also think that Peter would have us expand that out to be a bit more all-encompassing. That is to say, this credit is blessing that God gives us either in part on earth or in full in heaven. Look at First Peter 4.13 with me. Peter says, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. All right? So future heavenly reward, right? And then verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's well, present blessing take joy in your sufferings church God will reward you with Jesus in heaven and you're blessed in your sufferings because the spirit of God intimately draws close to you in it I really want us to see this church because this is really really good news for us so let's see it in our text as well Go to verse 19 with me again. Let me just read that again. Peter said, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Did you notice? Twice, twice, Peter says, this unjust suffering is a gracious thing. When the Bible repeats itself, we, we should listen. It means for us to take notice. This is purposeful phrasing that Peter uses twice. It makes us take notice and think, gracious? Really, God? Unjust suffering is a gracious thing? His kindness is at work in my life? This is God's unmerited favor for me? Like, what is God doing that makes unjust suffering as submissive servants a gracious thing? Let's look at verse 21. And remember that the fours in the Bible are there to tell us the reason for things. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God for, or because, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. This is what you've been called to so that you might follow in his steps. Our deepest desires change when we become Christians, don't they? I know mine did. I mean, I was living purely for things like personal happiness and comfort and money and likability with peers, pleasure in all the wrong places... And then God's spirit started to produce something else in my heart. And I started to desire things that my family and friends thought were really weird. Right? Like instead of wanting to go to parties, I just wanted to stay home and, and read the Bible. Will's lost it. Right? I think he's part of a cult. Like it just was so weird to them, but that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want the things of the world anymore. No, what I what I wanted, most of all, more than anything else, was to follow Jesus. My deepest desires were changed to wanting to know God and be near God and be more and more like God. I mean these are the the redeemed spirit born desires of a Christian, right? aren't our natural desires in life but when god saves us and he puts his spirit within us our our central desires our core longings change god gives us the desires of our hearts so the deepest longings of our souls begin to be for intimate nearness to god we say along with the psalmist in psalm 16 in your presence god there is fullness of joy And we long to know God. We say along with Jesus in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Jesus says to us like he did to Peter, come and follow me. And we say, yes, yes. That's what I want. More than anything else. That's what I want. You can have the world. I want to be near you, God. I want to know you. I want to be more and more like you. To follow Jesus in his steps. This is what our God has called us to, church. Don't lose sight of it. Because it's through the trials, it's through the suffering, as we walk in Jesus' steps, that God is fulfilling all of those deepest Spirit-born desires in us, which, listen, is our greatest good. And now Peter's going to remind us just what those steps are. And for the next four verses, he is drawing language about Jesus out of Isaiah 53. By the time Peter wrote this, Isaiah 53 was firmly established in Christian tradition as the text that pointed clearest to the suffering and exaltation of Jesus as the Messiah. When God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, wanted to most clearly show his people what the Messiah would look like, what the ultimate servant of God would look like, what God himself in human flesh would would reveal himself to be. This is what he says. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, my God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Down to verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Who was the Messiah to come? What would his life be marked by? The coming Savior of God's people was at his core an obedient, submissive, suffering servant. Unlike the Israelites who grumbled against their God and rebelled as soon as they saw the lightest of suffering, this Messiah would be perfectly obedient, fully submissive, trusting in his Father. And not submissive to an easy, worldly, blessed life, but through a life that was filled with suffering. And not even suffering that he deserved, but suffering on our behalf. Despised for us, stricken for us, pierced for us, by his wounds we are healed. And now as we look some 2,700 years later on this side of the cross, we see the life of the Messiah in full clarity. The life of Jesus the Messiah was marked by obedient submission to the Father. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. even though it meant unjustly suffering for us. In order to fully pay for our sins, Jesus needed to live a perfectly obedient life that we could not. And true obedience, perfect obedience, is accomplished not through obedience and ease, but when the king of kings submits to suffering, the full weight of the world's sin that he doesn't deserve. (laughs) In obedience to the Father and love for us, Jesus was and is the obedient, suffering servant. And whose spirit now lives inside of you, Christian? Well, the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of the suffering servant does. And he, his spirit wants intimacy with you. He is revealing Jesus to you that you might know him as the suffering servant and he is intimately drawing near you as the spirit of the suffering servant leads you in the steps of the suffering servant. It is a gracious thing, church. It is a gracious thing to unjustly suffer Because through obediently submitting as suffering servants, God is accomplishing our greatest good. He is intimately drawing near us. He is revealing himself to us. He is healing our wounds. He is making us more and more like him. He is blessing us with more of him. Both now and now. And in the age to come. Peter says, following in the steps of Jesus through suffering is to what we have been called. That's Bible talk for chosen. So God has chosen us to walk through suffering while walking in the steps of Jesus. Lots of things produce suffering in our lives. Um, Peter will make the connection in chapter 5 with with suffering and the devil. Um, It could be from the evil intentions of man. Sometimes we have to chalk up suffering as just the result of living in a broken world. But ultimately, over all that suffering, God alone has sovereignty. 1 Peter 4.19 Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God's sovereign will is over our suffering. He isn't just trying to make the most of a bad situation. No, the author and perfecter of your faith has intentionally written out the roadmap of your Christian life to be one marked by suffering, just like he did for Jesus. Over the last couple of years, God has used a book over and over again just to encourage me in the midst of various trials. And he's really reshaped how I look at suffering. Uh, the book is called J-Curve, uh, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. I would highly recommend it, but uh, let me just put up a couple slides and, and show you something uh, from it. When I say we often have the wrong roadmap for the Christian life, um, this is what I'm talking about. When I, when I think about my desires for my life, right? what I pray for, uh, what I hope for, what I expect God to do, if I'm being honest, this is often what it looks like. This is what success as a Christian looks like. It's like the more that I live a God-honoring life, the more he's sure to bless it, right? And I translate that blessing as uh, better ministry success, um, a healthy family, consistent joy, better relationships, job promotions, nice housing, etc., etc., like, this is what nailing it as a Christian looks like to my flesh. This is what I think is best for me. And then when suffering comes along, um, uh, let's say a boss treats me terribly, right, to keep in, in theme. You can go to the next slide. To keep in theme with our servant and master. And he demotes me, even though that I, I don't deserve it, right? It feels like a step backwards, Something that's getting in the way of what I'm hoping for in life. Maybe even that God is punishing me for something. But at the very least, this suffering is a step in the wrong direction. It's something I just have to endure until I can get my life back on track. When we look at the life of Jesus, though, Paul Miller, the author, says the roadmap to Jesus' life looks more like a J-curve going down into death and up into resurrection, right? We saw it in Isaiah 53, but you could look at a text like Philippians 2, where the apostle Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, be, uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So the Father's intentional will for Jesus, his purposed roadmap for Jesus was for him to humble himself, enter into suffering for us, while he obediently trusted the Father, until God himself restored him. Do you see that? But here's the thing. That wasn't just God's roadmap for Jesus' life. It's the roadmap for every follower of Jesus as well. Like Peter has reminded us, we've been born again. We are in Christ. We have died with him And we have risen with him. And the life we now live is united with his and reflects his. God has called us to walk in his steps. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul called it sharing his sufferings that leads to his resurrection. Peter calls it here walking in his steps. This is the roadmap that God has called us to. Christians. But what makes our steps different from his steps, our J-curve different from his J-curve is that Jesus' sufferings alone pay for our sins. And he has paid it in full. This is what Peter makes clear in our text. Verse 24. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He bore our sins. It's done. One sacrifice for all time. Your sufferings offer nothing in terms of payment for sins. Jesus' sufferings alone make us justified or right before God. Your steps don't do anything, but, oh, God is still at work in them, both for your good and for the world's. Jesus' sufferings were missional, right? And so are ours. The world is watching us in our suffering, and what do they see? Do they see bitter grumblings like the rest of the world? Or do they see in the midst of genuine mess, a genuine hope that demands explanation? Look, the main thing I wanted you to take away from these slides is I just just wanted to present this picture to you of what the trajectory of the normal Christian life looks like. The normal Christian life... Of walking in the steps of Jesus is a life that repeatedly reenacts the dying and rising of Jesus. This is normal. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. This is what we should expect life to be. Nailing it as a Christian doesn't look anything like success as the world defines it, because the world's value system is nothing like God's value system. God loves us too much for that, Christian. God is calling us to run a completely different kind of race. It looks like faithfully following Jesus as he intentionally appoints specific hardships, disappointments, trials, and even smaller inconveniences in our lives. And this is incredibly helpful to know because it places us. It places us. It helps us see and remember in the midst of suffering that we're actually on the right track. God is doing something in us as we walk in the steps of Jesus. What's amazing about walking in the steps of Jesus, church, is that we know where his steps lead. He was an obedient, suffering servant. But how does it end? It ends in resurrection, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And this is what Peter was reminding us all through chapter 1, is that that inheritance is yours. Kept in heaven for you, guarded by God Himself. It is yours. It's guaranteed. You are in Christ. You have died with Him and you will be raised with Him. Resurrection joy is coming. It's yours. Resurrection is both a promise that we stake our future hope in, but listen, resurrection is also a person. A person who is very much alive and whose spirit lives inside of you. You could look at a life of following in the steps of Jesus as one big J curve, but it's probably even more helpful to see it as a life of little J curves that make up a big one. Moments throughout our life where we die to ourselves, but then God intimately meets us in it. And we receive a taste of resurrection joy. Let me just give you an example from my life of what I mean. And I'll give a a couple quick application points and uh, we'll close. I'll preference my example here by saying this isn't some kind of super example of suffering. Um, I know that some of you are probably walking through much harder things right now. But I want to encourage you that even in the seemingly small moments of suffering, God is at work in them. He doesn't waste anything. God appoints hardships that are designed particularly difficult for you in order to draw you specifically to him. Even if no one else sees it, please know God sees it. He's at work in it, and it counts for something. All right, so here's my example. Before I was a Christian, I hated people. Just hated people. Uh, I said it all the time. All I wanted to do was live in Canada by myself in a cabin. Like, the dream was just to get up there, have a cabin, and just, you know, with nothing but myself and coffee and, and bacon, probably. And then... God saved me. And he began to totally redeem my heart. Like God gave me this deep love for his people and his church. I just totally flipped it on its head. And then in twenty sixteen, God began to call us to follow him into full time ministry. And ultimately that was to move to Ireland as church planners. So Sarah and I said yes to following Jesus. And did life get easier for us? No, it did not. I would say almost immediately there was increased spiritual warfare. But the biggest immediate cost was having to leave really close friends. Leave our home church family. Just immensely costly. And then a month before we leave, we find out that our church planning partners can't get a visa and they can't come with us. So we're going at it alone. We arrived in Ireland March 16th. Ireland closes the borders March 17th because of some virus. And then we enter into severe lockdown where we aren't allowed to talk to other human beings. And not just for a couple of weeks, but for the majority of time that we're there. And man, I can just tell you that is the perfect recipe for a will depression. Like, what are you doing, God? Doesn't seem like you're working for my good or for the mission, right? And if I'm expecting that other roadmap that we looked at, Like, I'm not just going to be disappointed. I'm going to be devastated. Which, in turn, turns into bitterness. I mean, was I not faithful to you, God? Why are you not caring for me as I follow you? But listen, as God began and continued to help me place myself on this roadmap, to remember that I wasn't forsaken on some strange course, But I was right where I was supposed to be, walking in the steps of Jesus. God began working little resurrections in my life that came out of suffering. Listen, I experienced real intimacy with Jesus, who also left community in order to obey the Father who also worked through loneliness on the mission field, who also had friends that left him. I experienced maturity and growth in Jesus as he faithfully used suffering to squeeze out cancerous idols that were at work in my heart. But it was also resurrection for others because it was out of my wrestle with depression that I could empathize with real tears as we counseled people after people that were also struggling. Moments of resurrection out of suffering for me and also those that I'm called to love. All of that as I learned to stake my hope in the final big resurrection. All right, so let me, let me give you some quick application points. How do we be mindful of, of God as a believer, as a follower of Christ that's, that's going through suffering? If you find yourself, as a Christian, stuck in some kind of suffering, here's a couple steps that I would suggest. Number one, locate yourself. Locate yourself in this J-curve. Remember that this isn't strange. This isn't abnormal. This is the normal roadmap for a follower of Jesus. You are walking in his steps. Sounds strange. God is doing something in you through this. Number two, ask God to take it away. We're not masochists, right? We don't want suffering. Jesus prayed, God, would you remove this cup from me? Paul prayed, God, remove this thorn from my flesh. We pray, God, would you take it away? Or, we pray that he would help us see that maybe it's, it's something that might be because of our own stubbornness that we're suffering. That's true for me sometimes. Number three, if God says no, embrace it. Embrace it. We submit to Him. We entrust ourselves to our Master who judges justly. And we ask for His help as we imperfectly do that. We say, God, this is hard. This is hard. I don't get it. But your will, not my will, lament and go to your father like the the psalmists of old did while you surrender control again and again and again to your good heavenly father. Number four, Share your story of suffering. Don't hide it. Please don't hide it because this is the story God is writing for you and he wants to use it. Don't do that expecting to receive from people only what God can give you. But instead, watch how God might use your suffering for mission and the encouragement of the church and hopefully your encouragement as well. Number five, pray for, hope for, patiently watch for resurrection. We remember that our God is the God of resurrection. And we wait for it in our lives we ask him to help us see it in just the everyday stuff of life. To see the little resurrections. To count them and take joy in them. It's been a crazy summer, but this last week I got to go up to the Boundary Waters. Spend a few days there up, <clears throat> up there with my buddies. And just, woo! so many good things, little things to thank God for that whole time. Just... um. Sunny days, got to see three different moose, and beavers, and loons, and uh, catch walleyes. And, and, um, I, just, I just have a proneness in my heart when suffering's there to go into Eeyore mode. I don't know about you. Um, and when I'm in Eeyore mode, it's really hard for me to, to thank God for things. But that is the recipe for finding joy, seeing his resurrection. Count them, number them we root ourselves in, we stake our ultimate hope in, the big resurrection. Finally, like I said before, there are several reasons why we see suffering in our lives. And some of it, we probably just need to leave to uh, mystery. I don't know all of your stories and I certainly don't know the depths of all of what you've been through. So please, please don't hear me easily explaining away something that you've gone through that's tragic. But here's what I know to be true for you no matter what, the suffering. If you're in Christ, if you're His, He will make it right in the end. you're a son or daughter of the Almighty, he will make it right in the end. He will execute perfect judgment. And like he will say later in chapter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know everybody's story, but God, I thank you that you do. I thank you that you not only know them, but that you are intimately aware of them. And that you don't do that from afar, but God, you came down and became one of us. Suffered along with us, for us, in order to empathize with us. And I thank you that you're a God that can do that. And so we come to you, we come to Jesus, and we just ask, God, would you help your people through whatever suffering we might be going through, or if you're not, that someday we will be. And I pray, God, would you draw near to them in a special way? Would you comfort them? Would you remind them who you are? Would you bless them with more of your presence? Would you give them a a kind of awareness that lets their suffering count and be a credit? Uh, God, we love you. We thank you. We pray that this word would produce small resurrection in our hearts this morning.